0: I was reminded re- when uh, we read or sang a portion of Psalm 145 at the concluding verses when I was in seminary, uh, and all the old alumni of, uh, of Neshota House, my seminary, say this when they're together uh, as a grace before meals. The eyes of all wait upon thee, O Lord, and you give them their food in due season, You open wide your hand and satisfy the needs of every living creature. slightly different. The first uh, year I was there, uh, the dean said it in Latin. So we had... I was glad that changed quick because I couldn't remember the responses, you know. (laughs) Three readings today all have something to do with uh, how Christian people uh, can think about heaven and earth about the relationship between this age and the new age and the former age and some things also about resurrection and its central uh, place in Christian understanding because Jesus today is speaking uh, in a controversy with some uh, religious sages in Jerusalem about this. So I thought I'd say something about all of this. It may be a bit disjointed, but this is becoming a big interest of mine. Uh, You know, any of us who've been pastors for a long time always have to deal with the issue of uh, somebody dying and saying, all I want to know is where are they now, right? Or does my father know what I'm doing? Does he know what I'm doing? I don't mean from a punitive side of things, but, you know, my mother or my aunt, Sophie. So how do we understand what that means? And uh, how do we understand at present uh, where everybody is or might be? And I'm going to say this again in the sermon. I think it's important for Christian people always to maintain some level of agnosticism with regard to sure answers about these matters. And the Bible does not give us sure answers about all of these questions, no matter what anybody may tell you. It presents to you a, not a point of view, that's too casual, but it does present uh, a way of coming to the issues that are around all of this. Haggai, uh, it means in Hebrew, my holiday. That's what that name means. (laughs) Dundesk. I don't know, but that's what it means. So Haggai was in the last of the prophetic cycles in ancient Israel. We call him a post-exilic prophet. And what that means is that he lived during the time that the Jews who had been taken to Babylon in the Babylonian captivity... We're now coming back to Jerusalem. This took a fair amount of time. We also need to remind ourselves that in the time of Jesus, there were many who still did not believe the return had completed itself. The return from exile. So the themes of exile, return, and transformation were always present In in the minds and hearts uh, of of the Jewish people, I I've been watching a lot of YouTube videos on Bible translations and everything, and this is a bit off the subject. But pretty soon we're going to be reading again from the book of the prophet Isaiah, and there's a there's a famous passage. I think it's Isaiah 40 that begins, "Comfort ye, comfort ye, comfort ye, my people." And so these people were debating about what what they ought to do. And if it was a modern translation, should they still say, Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, because that's what it says in the King James Bible. And in the Hebrew text, it says, Speak to the heart of my people. That's what it says in Hebrew. So the great question is, why would that be hard for us to appropriate and understand Speak to the heart of my people. Particularly when you understand that in the Hebrew worldview, the heart was not only the seat of the emotions, but of the intellect. So if you're thinking about what God's comfort is going to be, it's going to give you the ability to understand in a deeper and fuller way God's purposes for you and maybe the way things work. So speaking to your heart, I think, uh, is an important thing. And in modern brain research, we understand now that our nervous system is uh, liquid, which means thinking and feeling happen simultaneously. Whereas we used to divide these into categories, reasoning and feeling, emotional, emotions, right? So I think that's why being a student of this could be helpful. Haggai is back in Jerusalem, and he's, he, this all started for him at about 538 BCE and uh, to about 520. Remember, in BC we go backwards, so to zero, and then start again with, uh, with CE or AD. And so he is talking about the way in which God's restorative processes can be made real in history. Because Christianity has for a long, long time now thought about its deep things as happening somewhere else or having their origin somewhere else or believing that God is very far away. Right? There's a Greek philosopher named Epicurus who lived a long time ago and uh, he, he wrote and said, Well, Uh, The gods may be there, but they're very far away. And if we we have any experience of them, they occasionally intervene in human history, but most of the time they're remote from human interaction and human history. And why this is important is, is that it's had an enormous influence on our ability to do science, on our ability to understand the nature of God. So you begin to think, I guess God, the one God, is very far away. Well, our religious uh, forebears in Judaism never believed that and don't now. They believe that God is right here. Jesus thought God was right here. God is in God's space right here. So how do we know where we can appropriate this or be near this in a symbolic, at least, way? That's it. Go to the temple. Go to church where God is. That's God's dwelling place here. So when we start talking about what we're going to do in order to make restoration, exile now, restoration, transformation real, we're going to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. And a bunch of exiles had come back about 18 years uh, when, when Haggai started this and were just kind of lazing around. <laughs> right? well, Jerusalem was a wreck. It, it had been destroyed, pretty much. So this, uh, he is speaking to them about the need to rebuild the temple. And there's been some feeble efforts taken place. But he said, now you need, you need to do this because it's an important thing. And more to the point... This sort of sounds like a modern economic, it'll bring, it'll bring jobs to Jerusalem, <laughs> right? That's what he says here, that when you do that, you'll be putting people to work and you'll be participating now in uh, the fulfillment of God's purposes that Jerusalem in some way will occupy uh, in the hearts of faithful Jews, uh, its central place again. So he's speaking about this and saying, if you agree to do this, if you understand what's happening, it means now you're a participant in the bringing of the renewal and the reconciliation and the restoration uh, present in human history. So it's very hard for us even now to believe that God acts in human history because we want to we know how and how, how it is. And the Bible doesn't present those answers. People make them up. But we don 't get them from the biblical text we have We have to see that this is what they 're suggesting by virtue of the same experience that we have of something outside ourselves. The people of Israel and their wandering in the wilderness were haunted by a presence, and somehow they believed that there was something there that was calling them but also had a deep relationship with them now in history personally. And so by virtue of that, they sought to say, how do we cooperate with it? And Haggai is urging them to do this. We can do like we did with Daniel last time. We can date this very precisely because he's speaking about some things that happened. So he's one of the last of the post-exilic prophets and uh, Elizabeth Ross is glad because Zerubbabel probably won't come up again anytime soon. Or Shealtiel, right? No more of that. Thank you for your help. You By the way, uh, if you don't, if you're interested in this, you can buy for about seven dollars a little book called A Guide to the Pronunciation of Biblical Names. It's a, handy, it's a handy thing to be able to use. In Second Thessalonians, we've talked about God now cooperating with people in history, about the processes of restoration and uh, reconciliation in the world. And now we're going to speak about something that we talked about last week in the book of Daniel. There's some apocalyptic imagery in Second Thessalonians. And here's the situation on the ground. Paul saw that uh, apparently some people had come into the Thessalonian church and had said to them, uh, the new age has already come. It's already happened. So just do what you want to Just do whatever you're going to do. And he must have talked to them about something to do with the age to come or the, or the you know, whatever it is. But he's not pleased with th- this conclusion. And he tells them that uh, there, it's not true. Who's ever told you this, that the age to come has come, is wrong. It has not come. By the way, in about two, I've been beating this to death, But in about two chapters, we're going to have the passage where Paul says those who don't work shouldn't eat because he's speaking directly to this constituency that were sitting around on their assets, (laughs) (laughs) frozen assets, (laughs) (laughs) and uh, weren't doing anything. And so he said, well, we'll have to bring some discipline to this or you should in in any case, and in the community, if they don't work, they don't eat. This did not mean a biblical precedent for uh, reducing the food stamp program. (laughs) Particularly by the person who quoted from Paul not very long ago, who received the year before $3.5 million in agricultural subsidies. How could a guy get to be on that committee? That's what I want to know. What goes on in Congress that would say, I'd like to be on the Agriculture Committee for the House of Representatives? You know? Do you receive any agricultural subsidies? Well, yeah. (laughs) Maybe we ought to get somebody who doesn't receive any. You know, then we can have a conversation about whether we ought to reduce it or not. But uh, it's... uh, a puzzle. So, what does Paul tell us about this? How do we know about the age to come? How do we begin to understand what it means? And maybe what would he suggest about what the future bodes for Christian people? And one of the things he says in this reading is you need to keep to the traditions that you have been taught. And that's true uh, for most things that people do intentionally, right? If you're a scientist, you do the science according to the philosophy and traditions of science, how science is done. So uh, if for no other reason than other scientists can understand what in the world you're talking about or we're going to do. So the great question for Christian people, and uh, certainly from his own personal experience as a faithful, pious Jew prior to his conversion, it means that he continues to practice his religion, that he continues to urge on people uh, the understanding of belief in Christ, that what you do after belief in Christ is to give thanks for now being in You don't have to do those things to be in. You're in because of belief in Christ. And so learning the traditions is the way in which you affirm that, give thanks for that, and continue to be be provided uh, with the internal stamina to meet the challenges and the opportunities that are in front of you on a daily basis, you know. But the spiritual life for Christian people is putting gas in the tank. Right? That's why I used to be so silly about this when people said, I don't know whether I believe any of this, Father Brewer, but I can tell you that when I come to church and leave, I feel better. I feel better. I'm so happy now to hear that. You know, however often you come. If you feel better, that's probably a good thing, because when you feel better, you're more able to do things than when you don't. I can testify to that (laughs) from recent experience. So Paul is saying, keep to the traditions, understanding that uh, there may be some things as we move forward that are signs But Paul would speak against the view, the type of Christianity that always sees things in apocalyptic terms. Or always reads signs and portents into what it is that's going on. I listened to a guy on a radio show a while back. I've only heard him once. He believes that there are black helicopters flying around here all the time spying on the american i mean he's got a big long conspiracy theory about how the, how all this connects and maybe why the black can't be seen because of some other kind of you know maybe it's like the klingons you know cloaked <laughs> right yeah. that was a great moral issue wasn't there in the in star trek because the whatever the federation was called or anything captain kirk and then later the the other people was, they believed there was a moral, uh, that it was not moral to use this technology. So they didn't have it. So all of a sudden, the Klingons uncloak, or the whoever it is, and, you know, here we are. They're right next to you here. What are we going to do? You know? <laughs> so Paul is speaking against that kind of thing. Uh, we can, through the observing of the traditions, experience some species of tranquility and stability. So Luke today is caught in a controversy with uh, some sages. We, we haven't we haven't read the readings coming up to this, but when this controversy came up, he'd already cleansed the temple. In Luke. He'd already overturned the money changers' tables. He'd caused a lot of trouble in the temple. And he was now beginning to engage in religious controversies. And today it's with the Sadducees, or as my classmate Jeffrey Barnes said, the Sadducees. <laughs> and he went to Harvard. <laughs> so. The Sadducees, here's what they are. We've got two parties in Jude, we've got more than two, but two major parties that appear often in the Gospels are the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And the Pharisees uh, often get a very unfair press in the Gospels. I think principally because when the Gospels were written, which is nearly two generations after Jesus' earthly ministry, they had risen to prominence, and they were considered by Christians to be uh, antagonists. And the reason why the Pharisees had risen to prominence was because the temple got destroyed in 70 AD, and it's the Pharisees who permitted, in large part, Judaism to continue in its present form. We call it rabbinic Judaism. Some may dispute that category. But that's who they were. But they were very, very... Um, they had a lot of integrity in many ways. The Sadducees had a lock on the temple. Had a lock on the, on the practices in the temple. They ran the temple. They were very prosperous uh, economically. And they had a particular viewpoint about the nature of Judaism... And that was that the only authoritative place where you can look uh, in, in the practice of Judaism for what to do and how we think about things is the Torah. The first five books of what Christians call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. That's the location for authority. Nothing else. And the Pharisees said we believe in the centrality of the Torah, but we also believe in the traditions that have grown up around how we understand what it says. Things like, you've heard the Talmud uh, that ultimately became, and the other kinds of, you know, writing around the page, uh, these words mean. So that tradition was honored by the Pharisees in some ways. So fundamentalist Sadducees say to Jesus today, Here's a here's a woman, who was married to a man, a husband who died, leaving them childless. She then marries uh, her his brother, and he dies, leaving them childless. And then he marries the next brother, and he le they, they he dies and they're childless. And they go through seven guys, uh, the Book of Ruth, you know. I've told you this before every once in a while when uh, people who are going to get married here choose the readings for the thing. They say, oh, I want you to read that beautiful passage from the book of Ruth. Whither thou goest, I will go. Where thou lodgest, I will lodge. I said, well, uh, we can read it, but you have to know that Ruth is talking to Naomi and not Boaz. Right? And more than once somebody has said to me, they won't know. (laughs) they won't know (laughs) okay that whole book is about something called the Leverate Law the Leverate Law was if you were married to a man who died whether you were childless or not or you had one or two or more children uh, one of the man's brothers if he had bro- married the, the woman and continued the family line and name. That was how it worked, right? So the, 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 the hyperbole of the Sadducees is here we've gone through seven people in the resurrection, which they did not believe in. Uh, Whose uh, wife is she? After she's died, now she's... So Jesus really doesn't take the bait... Here's a commentary that I read about it just to, in, just to reinforce what I said. It's important to keep in mind that the question posed about the resurrection came not from bereaved persons seeking hope or from believers searching for more clarity on the doctrine. Rather, Jesus is being interrogated by persons who already were fixed in their position that there was no resurrection of the dead. You see, the Pharisees did believe in resurrection. The concept of resurrection has been around prior to what biblical scholars call the Christ event, (laughs) right? Some event. (laughs) So, they are trying to prove this, and Jesus doesn't take the bait, and he uh, points, uh, points to the inappropriateness of the question, and said, in the age to come, There is going to be no marriage or giving in marriage. We're going to be living in a transformed world when the resurrection, the general resurrection occurs. So here's the point I want to make about this and what Luke is speaking of here. uh, And something that I have been thinking a lot about. And that is, uh, when you die, I've told you about the tombstones in English churches. David Brewer, this is 16th, 17th, 18th century. David Brewer, gone, but will return. <laughs> you know, sometimes they use a Latin word that says, will return, I will return. Belief in the general resurrection. They are going to now be part with everybody in the general resurrection when that happens in God's time. Then we get to the late 18th and early 19th century, and we begin, David Brewer, gone home, somewhere else, right? Now, there there are many theories about this, you know, uh, in terms of the immortality of the soul. We're sort of in the middle, I think, as as Episcopalians, uh, with regard to the soul We have some Episcopalians, I think, who have a very Catholic view of the soul, uh, and there are many who have a very Protestant view. Protestants generally believe in the soul's existence, but fall into two major camps about what this means in terms of an afterlife. Some following Calvin believe in the immortality of the soul and conscious existence after death which is particularly important if you have a doctrine of hell, which insists that hell is a place you'll be for eternity where punishment will be directly felt. Lutherans, who also have influenced us, believe in the mortality of the soul and unconscious sleep until the resurrection of the dead. Theologian Frederick Beekner sums up this position in his 1973 book, Whistling in the Dark. We go to our graves as dead as a doornail and are given our lives back again by God, that is, resurrected just as we were given them by God in the first place at the general resurrection. Now, N.T. Wright, who I like a lot, says his father had just died when he was interviewed recently. I saw the interview He said, you know, this is the first time I had to grieve in my life about this. And he said, I'm absolutely convinced my father was a very quiet practicer of his Anglicanism. Not like his crazy sons, he said. But I believe he is now resting with Jesus until the general resurrection. And he also commented on the fact that we draw a lot of cartoons with people sitting on clouds, you know, with the white, with an album sitting on clouds, and one of the cartoons he saw a couple of years ago had the caption, geez, if I'd have known it it was like this, I'd have brought a magazine. (laughs) (laughs) Have you ever read some of this? You know, what's going to happen? You know, like, oh, this will be fun, milk and honey. You know, I, I don't know what people would think about that. In any case, there also was a New Yorker cartoon. We have it in the bathroom on a bulletin board, of God or somebody at a at a podium like this, and there's a guy standing down, you know, like in a cloud, but somewhere below this, and he and he's looking here and saying, "No, no, that's not a sin either. You must have worried yourself to death." <laughs> Uh, The point about this is, uh, I believe Tom Wright's correct, and that is that uh, we are always safe with God. And so, where is he or she now? Safe in God's space. Safe with God. That we say that by virtue of our faith. And we have the opportunity to respond to this reality. Luke would say in his gospel, you do that by being a good human being. You do that by being on the right side of generosity. You do that by making sure that uh, justice is distributed relatively evenly. And that's one of the ways that you make present the values of the kingdom. So heaven and earth are a present reality, and it's right here. When you read in the, I harp on this, all. if you read it in the Greek, it says the kingdom of God is near you, right here. That's what it says in the original language, right here. Not there, or there, <laughs> but right here. Well, how do, we know, how do we know? Well, there's some things that we don't know. And the Bible doesn't tell us the answer. So what that means is, is that we need to say, I guess that if I do believe through faith that God loves me uh, and I believe that uh, in Jesus I have seen or, and read words and works indistinguishable from the words and works of God, that I must trust in the fact that he is near me and that I must do something. And do something means extend be generous, you know. Take everybody seriously. Remember that each one of us is made in God's image, you know. And sometimes that's hard to do, isn't it, because the image that some people project, uh, project is very distorted, and it's very hard to see their humanity. But somehow we're called to, called to do that. There's some believe, you know, that, that hell, if there's anybody in it, Hell is a place where, or or, or hell is people who've just said no to God and they don't care. They're finished. They're not, and they turn away. And then in some ways, some of their, their humanity drains out of them. That's not the answer. It is a way to think about what that might, what that might mean. If you ever say, well, you know, where's hell? It's the same thing. I don't know where hell is. The, the, the Eastern Orthodox say hell and heaven are all mixed up together right here. So we got damned people running around. We got everybody. And do you remember as a kid, my grandparents and my parents said some people make their own hell on earth, right? So maybe there's something to say about, about that. I said once in the religion class at St. Michael's that we, I don't know whether there's, if there is a hell, I don't know if anybody's in it. And some kids said, even Hitler? Right? Good question. So you just have to say, well, I, I, I don't know. But what we do know is that God unconditionally loves, forgives, and accepts us. And so by virtue of that, it's a starting point for beginning to uh, understand the values of the kingdom to know that those people we love who have died have gone to God and are safe in the everlasting arms it says in one of these definitions I didn't read to you in the bosom of Abraham Queen Victoria would not like that because she did not wish to be in the (laughs) bosom of Abraham so I don't know what she's doing she's maybe in the bosom of Haggai (laughs) It's a true story. She was riding in her carriage in London, and one of her ladies in waiting was, was riding with her. And he said, she said, Oh, Mom, isn't it a comfort to know that when we die, we shall be in the bosom of Abraham? And Queen Victoria said, I shall not be in the bosom of Abraham. <laughs> So don't pray for being in the bosom of Abraham necessarily, but uh, give thanks uh, for a God who unconditionally loves, accepts, and forgives you. Amen. Amen.